You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello, I'm comedian Stuart Goldsmith, and in this podcast I take a really deep dive into the creative process of my fellow comedians. Today I'm talking to Alice Fraser. Let's have the theme tune, please. So welcome to the show. I'm Stu. Today, Alice Fraser is my guest. She's an absolutely brilliant Australian stand-up comic who works all over the world. I caught up with her at the Edinburgh Festival after several near misses in an attempt to uh, get her on the show. You might know her from her numerous comedy specials. Um, she has released a trilogy of, uh, of those shows, her first three shows, I believe, um, which are heart-wrenching and difficult and brilliant and really, really worth watching. You can get them for free somewhere. I'll link to exactly where that is in the show notes. I, I believe she's podcast them. Um, you might know her as the a regular co-host of uh, the Bugle podcast alongside uh, Andy Zaltzman. And um, you might also know her own podcast, Tea with Alice. She does absolutely bundles of stuff. And if you simply type her name into Google, you will discover loads more of it. But I'll try and link to a bunch of her various uh, comedy outputs in, in, the, uh, in the show notes of this episode. So have a look in there and click around the place. Um, we recorded this show live after a special one-off event at the Edinburgh Festival. We tried this and it was great, so we might get to do it again. Um, we had uh, exclusively two members of the Comedians Comedian Facebook group, which you can join via that social media site. Um, about 40 of us in the end got together, met. Finally, I was able to sort of put uh, names to faces, uh, people who are regular contributors to the Facebook site where fans of this show, Kindred Spirits, get together to nerd out about comedy and ask each other questions and so on. Um, and we all got together, met up, and then we went to see Alice's show en masse. And then afterwards, we gave her an hour to recover. And then we all marched down through Edinburgh over to the to Audrey, the vintage mobile cinema. There will be a link to her in the show notes as well. Um, an incredible little uh, mobile cinema venue. And uh, we all piled into there. And then rather than watching a movie, mobile, vintage or otherwise, Instead, I grilled Alice live on the show we'd just seen and her other work as well. So we will be referring obliquely to a few bits and bobs of that show in this episode, but I'm sure you can get yourself up to speed fairly quickly. With no further ado, this is the wonderful Alice Fraser. How was that for you? You knew we were all there. Presumably. I, yes, I tried not to remember that, but um, <laughs> it, it was a lovely show. It was a lovely audience. It did run long, started slightly late, and that was stressing me out. But it was such a lovely audience that I kind of basically in the second half stopped delivering material and just started saying it. <laughs> everyone was just laughing at anything. And, and how do you... <laughs> See, look at them. They're like the easy touches. How do you feel... Where are we in the lifetime of this show? Have you just brought this show from a run in Adelaide, from a, a, uh, another I, I, festival I as well? tested it in Australia. I did it in the festivals there. Um, and it's one of those shows, well, because of the tech side of it and because it is a double act... I can't iterate on the fly. So, you know, in your trial... I love iterators of verbs. Sorry, do one. <laughs> yeah, I've read too much tech bullshit. Um, so, you know how normally if you're doing a trial show, you'll have written a piece of material and you think it might work and you launch into it and 
they're not responding and you make a sharp left and try something else. You cannot do that with this show because it's so tight and because it's so dependent on the interaction between the two of... Uh, so I have to, you have to wait till after the show and change it then. So it's just a slower process. It's taken me longer to be happy with it. Um, I think I'm probably happy with it now, though there's a few little... The, okay, yeah, the we'll, we'll we'll get on to drilling down into those few little things you're not happy with soon. Um, how, um, j- just for the benefit of the one or two people who listen to the podcast who aren't here, um, <laughs> for, the, uh, for the benefit of the listener at home, w- when you say it's a double act with tech, can you just describe this show and or it loosely what the, what the premise of it is, what the what the uh, technology is, and how that uh, differs from your usual output? Okay, so it is. It is theory, it, the the pitch line, I guess, is it's a double act with a robot. It's a double act with an AI. But if you write AI on publicity material, people are like, "Why is she doing a double act with Al?" So, <laughs> is that, did that come up? Uh, that did come up. Yes. So okay. it is. It's a. It is um, a second character on stage with me. It's, so that's for a number of reasons. One was okay. There's like five. Re- this is going to be so. So many reasons. Dry and technical, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I did, the first three shows I did in Edinburgh were were Savage, The Resistance and Empire, which was my trilogy, and they're very heartfelt and they're very, uh, in some places, very dark um, and very personal. I'm doing a one-off of the trilogy on the 13th, uh, which is Monday, which is most people's day off if you want to come to that. Uh, Three hours of comedy in a row. Who'd want that? (laughs) <laughs> um, you're looking at all of them <laughs> <laughs> three hours of comedy 15 minutes of which involve walking um, there's no walking in my show Point is, the point is I did those shows and I thought well I want to do something different I want to step away from that I want to do something that is distinct that see if I can do something else to, to, for myself as well to see if I can do something that isn't you know me ripping out my insides and laying them out on a table for people to give stars to um so uh, I thought I'll do something different, and then what different? And then I thought, well, I started off in sketch and improv. I, I like working with other people, but I also can't be bothered working with other people. So there was that element. And also um, this is we're, we're in an environment now where people are increasingly touchy about who can say what. There are rules that are being implemented and changed and sort of different people believe there are different rules about who can say what and when and how and how considerate you need to be of the potential feelings of your potential audience and your potential audience expands out into infinity with the internet. So you have to consider that potentially anyone on the planet might hear your words and how they might be affected by that. So I thought, what if you had someone with no identity speaking? What would they say and what could they say? To me, that sounds like the sort of thing, were I ever to arrive as an artist myself, were I ever to arrive at that concept, it would be after I'd made a load of work flailing around not knowing what it was, I'd go, oh, I've made this. (laughs) The way you've described it then, it sounds very much like a series of logical steps. And is that that genuinely you came about it by going, I'm interested in this, this facet of communication... I want to, you know, to me, like yes, the way you described yes. it then feels like like a really precise version of it. Well, is yes it- and no, because what I have now is not what I conceived of. I mean, what I conceived of was basically a hate crime, just having ethos. <laughs> <laughs> well, just having ethos say the most outrageous shit and seeing if he could get away with it. Stuff that I couldn't say. Not being a person. Yeah, have him say whatever anti-feminist stuff, that kind of thing, and then I just couldn't think of any jokes that were good enough 
that were worth saying or I'm not maybe not interested in those. I mean, I do sort of skirt that stuff a little bit, talking about who's allowed to say what. And, and I hope in a nice way, I hope in a way that doesn't hurt people's feelings um, because that's the last thing I want to do. But I also don't particularly want to be restricted in topic. Yes. Who do you think um, are your, that part of your comedy which is one-liner based? And I think of the mermaid joke from tonight, which I won't ask you to burn, but properly had me <laughs> clapping like an idiot. Thank um, you. Uh, those kind of jokes are less commonly written, are they, by female comics? Uh, I feel like I can point to a lot more one-liner comics who are men than women. Yes. Um, yeah, I think... It comes from, in some ways, being a bit of a word nerd. Uh, and my sort of exposure to comedy as a youth was quite old-fashioned comedy. I was very, like, the goon show, Monty Python, the, that, that's, that sort of genre of comedy, um, Marx Brothers. So I was sort of steeped in that, and I think it comes out of that silliness and my desire to be silly. And also maybe as a kind of a counterpoint to doing quite heavy material, you need to have a way to just, like, bam, drop a laugh in. And and for me, I don't like joking about sad things, if you know what I mean, but I like talking about sad things in comedy. So the way that I do that is I, I sandwich them so that you have a joke about something and then you talk about this dark, horrible, sad truth without making light of it, without pulling any of the punch, and then you do another joke really quickly. And it's like a, like a, like a film where the light and the dark are so close together that people can't tell that they're separate. Gotcha. And the feeling is just of a continuous flow of laughter throughout talking about, you know, in Savage, sort of terrible things in a palliative care ward, in the resistance about the Holocaust, in Empire about, uh, you know, death and, and villainy. Like, uh, that is, that tactic, I think, is why I use the one-liners. And, and also, they're the- fun. Is that yeah, absolutely. Is that is that tactic something that you have discovered yourself doing along the way, or was that more of it? Were you doing that in the first show you wrote? I think I was doing it in the first show I wrote. I mean, Savage was a self-defense show. I wanted to write a silly show. I love silly comedy. I always want to be silly, and I always fail to be silly. Um, Savage. I was trying to write a silly show. I was very sad. My mum was dying. And so when I went into the first trial, I literally printed out a bunch of jokes from Twitter and from my articles, just a pile from of jokes. Your, from your own Twitter, just to clarify. From my own Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. From my own Twitter. Uh, yeah, I genuinely just pulled out a bunch of them, stuck them in a Word document, and then I had the dot points of the story I wanted to tell. And the experiment was, for me, on that first trial show, like coming from the hospital to this tiny little bunker in Sydney... And I had the two piles, one on each side, and I would tell as many jokes as it took to make people ready to hear something fucking horrendous. <laughs> and then, and so that, I think I developed that tactic then. That seems to me to be very, uh, it, it seems to strike, to resonate with me of, of how I see you as a comic and as a person, mm. in that you seem. I don't know quite what the what the word is self possessed, self made. You feel very deliberate <laughs> as as both a comic and a person. Yeah, sociopath. That's yeah, <laughs> that's me. No. Well, no, but do, do, you see, do you do you see where I'm coming from? Like, I think of you as you wear your feminism on your sleeve, your Buddhism on your sleeve. You have made. You seem to be someone who has made very clear decisions about the sort of person you're going to be. 
See, that is an interesting thing because I I think I wear them on the sleeve because I don't want to wear them in in my identity. There's this Paul Graham article about holding your identity loosely and I, I'm, I'm really interested in discussion, right? And if somebody is questioning your identity, something that you feel is part of you, you feel attacked and you can't actually have a discussion about that because they're, they're saying, so do you think you're valid? Whereas if you are wearing it on the outside, you know, I'm, I'm not a feminist, I'm, I have these feminist beliefs, then if somebody goes, well, what about that one? Then you can go, oh, that's an interesting thing and then you can genuinely uh, deal with it in an intellectual way rather than just being like, get away. Yes, absolutely. But but that decision to be like that is also the quality that I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) I I don't know. I, I, I think... I think most comedians are outsiders Um, and it's one of the reasons why a lot of comedians work overseas because it feels more comfortable to be an outsider somewhere where you should be an outsider than feel like an outsider in your own home, in your own place where you should belong. Um, And, you know, I was was a weird kid. I was bullied in high school um, and... I don't don't really know how to... I don't know. I've forgotten the question. (laughs) That's okay. Um, So, I mean, it is okay, but it obviously puts the ball back in my court. All I was doing was listening, and now I've got to think of something else. (laughs) Um, I mean, are you saying, like, I've I've sort of built myself as a person deliberately, calculatedly? Not not calculatedly, (laughs) I wouldn't say, but deliberately, kind of deftly. I feel like me as a person, I'm just like, oh, God, I, I, I have all these things, I guess. I've got, I've got these qualities, and I suppose I'll muddle through. And I don't feel like you're muddling through. I feel like you're going, I have this, this, and this, and I will use them like this. Maybe. I, f- I, don't, and I don't mean that to have no, any no, negative no. connotation. No, no, no. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I, my quality and my flaw, which are two sides of the same coin, otherwise you'd let go of the flaw, um, is that I... I I'm careful of the people around me, which is a result of my mum having been sick uh, all my life. So you have to be careful of the people around you because you can hurt them, you can affect them, you can influence them. And so that, I think, leads to me being quite uh, closed in. If I have a feeling, my first reaction is to close it in. Um, And so, yeah, what you let out then is a choice, I guess. Yeah. If that doesn't sound too insane. No, totally, completely understand that. And nor does it sound remotely sociopathic. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so in the let's talk about who you were before you brought yourself to comedy and what attracted you to it. Ah, oh, that's I I who was I before I came to comedy? That is a really your reaction to that question is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just in the kind of a ah, oh, like I, I think I know who I was. Well, what I would interpret from that is that comedy, bringing yourself to comedy was enormous. Yes, absolutely, because it was a, a, a failure. Um, I, I was a lawyer. Like, I, I was following the tracks. I was doing exactly what I was expected to do, and I was doing it comparatively well. I got into a good firm, all of that stuff. And, and that decision to go, I'm actually not going to do this anymore, I think that... That might have been the first decision the first decision that I explicitly ever made to please myself. It wasn't that I didn't make decisions to please myself before that. It was that I would always justify them. Like, I, I didn't move out of home until I got into Cambridge. Because then you're allowed. Because you got into Cambridge. That's a 
You're, you know what I mean? So comedy was just burning my bridges um, in a way. So it was a big decision. There's a, a street performer now sadly no longer with us uh, called Robert Nelson, known as Butterfly Man, who left his, I believe, computer programming, some sort of corporate job, um, and he left it in order to become a street performer and to make sure that he never went back. He had a butterfly tattooed on his bald head. <laughs> as a, as a, that, that bridge is burnt, fuckers. Like, do you know what I mean? This yeah. is, I'm committed to this thing. That just made me think of that. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, it was. And also, I was not good at comedy when I started, arguably now. Um, <laughs> I, I, w- I, wasn't, I wasn't good at it. I, I started doing it at university because I wasn't good at it, because I'd never failed, because I'd never done anything that I wasn't good at for any and, length and of time. And because you enjoyed it or purely for those kind of self-lacerating... My friends were doing it. It was, it was fun and then I got interested in it. Yeah, it was... It was um, it's comedy. Like, like joining the skydiving society. I'm assuming that's a thing at Cambridge. Um, <laughs> like joining, joining the skydiving society because you, you're scared. It's something I always I remember hearing Eddie Izzard say in an interview in like 1995 or six was that oh I always try to go towards things that scare me. And he said not jumping off a cliff onto a spike, but you know that kind of that kind of thing. And I, I really I kind of I think I I think now that I probably adopted that as a sort of this is terrifying. Therefore, I should make myself do it. Well, it was more that, that because I was careful of other people and I hadn't failed, I wanted to. I wanted to see what it was like. To I wanted to see if people would still love me. Because otherwise you go through life terrified that if you get anything wrong, people won't love you. It's never said. No one ever says God, that. I'm still terrified of that. You just made Yeah, 100%. I think that's one of the many reasons why not so many women go into comedy as men, not so many women go into podcasting as men, even though there are no gatekeepers, not so many women go into entrepreneurship as men because stereotypically uh, and typically young boys, whether it's socialised or biology, in school they bounce off the walls. They get in trouble and they learn that you get in trouble and it'll be okay. And generally, statistically, young girls sort of play quietly and so they don't learn that you can fail and be okay, that it, there's, a, there's an other side to that, that they're beyond that horizon there's something more. Um, I, I do think that, or they just want to have jobs, secure jobs so they can have babies, whatever. I don't know. So this is Alice. Tremendous fun to talk to her. She's so intelligent, so erudite, and really, as I, as I have already put to her in this interview... Um, she really knows herself and seems self-made in a way that to me is very exciting because I feel like I am, a, as a person and as a, as a performer, I feel like I'm sort of quite a flappy combination of random attempts of things that have gradually coalesced over time into a human being. Whereas Alice seems to me to be someone both on stage and off who has uh, very carefully designed herself, who's made decisions about the sort of person she wants to be, and I find that absolutely magnetic. She's very, very funny, so do track down her work, a lot of which will be linked to in the show notes from this episode. Now, this episode actually went out especially uh, early. We record, I, I think I released it the, a few days after uh, it was actually recorded, to members of the Insiders Club, which is a level even deeper than the uh, the Facebook community. 
uh, for the podcast, there is a thing called the Insiders Club, which you can join in return for a tiny donation, £2 a month or more if you'd like. Some people do turn it into £3 or £5 a month, but you get the same thing. I'm just trying to reflect the, the spirit of uh, uh, donation and generosity that has really supported this podcast over the last six years. Um, but basically, by joining the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders, you not only get to enjoy certain treats, such as pre-release unedited episodes uh, like, like this one that uh, people in the Insiders Club heard many weeks ago, um, but you also get access to all of the extra content from all past and future episodes, uh, including conversations with people like Dara O'Brien, James Acaster, Sarah Millican, and many more besides. But you also, also get to participate in a number of special projects just for that that private podcast. It's a whole other podcast feed that you put into your phone and then you've not only got the Comedians Comedian podcast, you've also got the extra private Insiders Club one where you can pitch to interview me on the subject of your choice uh, and we do a thing called Comedy Critique where we play newer comedians who want to uh, have a, a community of comedy-savvy people descend on five minutes worth of their work and then discuss it in front of them. That's been really fun, really successful and uh, a lot of people who've submitted stuff to that tell me that They've, they've got a lot out of it. All of those fun things available at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Coming up, the rest of the show. But briefly before that, go to alicecomedyfraser.com. Not Alice Fraser Comedy, but alicecomedyfraser.com to download the full trilogy, which is three of her wonderful shows. Uh, really, really moving and powerful and very, very funny. And as you will hear in this episode, uh, difficult Difficult to write and sometimes difficult to hear, but completely worth your time. So go to alicecomedyfraser.com and you can follow Alice on Twitter and all, all of those sorts of things. The links will be in the show notes. In just a moment, we'll hear more from Alice for the second half of this live interview um, at the Vintage Mobile Cinema. Audrey is her name and you can find a link to her in the show notes. Um, but there's just time for me to tell you that coming up soon on the podcast will be the live interview with No Such Thing as a Fish. Um, they are, the, well, I mean, you will know them if you're at all a fan of podcasts. They're the elves from QI. They're the people that compile the facts for uh, episodes of the TV show QI that is seen all over the world. Um, and they also have their own podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, in which they talk about facts and banter about facts and uh, improvise very amusingly indeed. And uh, I spoke to them at the London Podcast Festival just last weekend. That is a cracking episode that I was planning to rush out immediately. But the uh, the format on which I received it was no less than eight separate feeds, which all need to be mixed together in order to make sense of it. My editor Nathan is going to do that. Oh, poor him. Now, that'll be coming up soon. Also, a live episode with Garrett Millerick from the Barn Theatre in Welling Garden City. So that one's coming up soon. Plus all the other stuff I recorded at Edinburgh with people like Laura Davis, Elf Lyons, Janine Garaffalo, Mark Thomas, Sean Morley, and plenty more besides. Loads more stuff coming your way soon. Now let's hear the rest of this interview with Alice Fraser. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Talk to us about the ways in which you were bad at comedy. 
to begin with? I was, oh, my God. So... <laughs> if was, there's anyone listening thinking, oh, I might be bad at comedy. <laughs> 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 OK, I... Um, I was alternately too bold and too shy, so I was awkward. Uh, I did a... It was a 24-hour play in a day at Sydney University in O-Week, an improv play in a day, and you'd get a little slip of paper and you'd go on stage and be the character that it said on the slip of paper with the purpose that it said on the slip of paper. And I went on and I had a 15-minute scene and I was humiliatingly bad. And I was so... Like I was at... In first year uni, I was chubby, I was uncomfortable in myself, I was... Just every part of me was uncomfortable on stage and I walked off with like tears in my eyes and thinking, I'm so bad at that. I want to be good at that because the people who were good at it made me so happy, you know, just watching them have fun and stupid. I'm sure it was terrible in retrospect but it was so beautiful to watch and I thought, well, I'd like to, I'd like to be that. I'd like to be Monty Python. I'd like to be the Marx Brothers. I'd like to... When you said they, the people who could do that were so happy, did they? do you remember them seeming powerful? Did it seem like a powerful state to be in? It just, it just seemed like they were magic. It seemed like they were so smart and beautiful and, you know, incredibly... It was like magic. I couldn't tell how they were doing it. And I didn't know if there was a how or if it was just an innate glory that was coming out of these people. You know, I, I wouldn't go into the lunchroom, uh, into the um, into the playground at lunch because people would throw sandwiches at me. Like, I wanted to be like those people because the, everyone loved them. Can I ask, given the context, this might you might not want to answer this question. Do you have a feeling of why it was that people would throw sandwiches at you? Were you behaving? In I a was way a that was... weird kid. Okay. <laughs> I, I was. I was a very odd kid. I had this kind of Buddhist background. Mum was sick, so I would sort of... I guess I was probably, in retrospect, pretty depressed or something. I didn't have a lot of patience for teenage girl politics. I went to an all-girls school. Um, I had maybe... I can some... really imagine you as a very younger woman saying, I do not have a lot of patience for these teenage girl politics. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can really leave it in a sort of Heathers-esque movie. Yeah, <laughs> genuinely like that. It sure. wasn't It wasn't good. Um, and I had a lot of pride and I was a nerd. So, And I'd also always had my twin up until the time I got into high school. I'd had my twin brother to kind of bounce off and defend me and, you know, gang up with me against the world. And so I felt very alone. And I, yeah, gen- genuinely just didn't have enough... Uh, I had too much pride to... Um, and and maybe fear of failure to try to get into the cool teenage girl thing. <laughs> but you were, you were able to master that fear of failure when it came to performing. So how long did you stay bad for? When did you first start to feel like, hang on a minute, maybe I can be magic as well? Um, and it... I applied for the law review. I'd done the arts review the year before, uh, which is these faculty reviews at Sydney University, their sketch shows. And I walked in and they said, oh, you don't have to audition. We know your work. And it's because every Thursday at Manning Bar there'd be theatre sports at 1pm and it would be full, 200 people, every week. That is a great place to be bad in. (laughs) because you learn very quickly what works and what doesn't work. And um, I, I didn't really even think about what a privilege that was. Most people start comedy in 
terrible back rooms of pubs with six other comedians looking at their phones, you know. So I had these 200 people just watching me fail week after week after week and all of a sudden, I mean, just gradually, I guess. Okay. And what were you, in that kind of theatre sports environment, I understand theatre sports to mean kind of improv games. Yes, that kind of short thing. form improv games. Okay. And I mean, of course, in retrospect, that is the least cool thing. Like, <laughs> But at the time it seemed like they were amazing people. And so what was, what was the next step of you then starting to write jokes and try stand-up? Well, so it was a different time in terms of the women in doing comedy um, thing. Okay, that makes me sound really old and really wanky, but it was that thing of the girls didn't write the sketches. Um, the girls did the dance numbers and they w- did the nude sketch and they, you know, were the straight men in every sketch. And so I just started writing sketches where there were strong female characters and like it sounds really boring and cliched and all of that stuff but I just you know I think I was I just refused to do the nude sketch I was like that's I mean, not I, you, you've referred to casually twice to the nude sketch in, in a way that I think everyone here is like hmm. in, <laughs> in the law review every year there is a nude sketch okay. where which everyone is you know people do funny things passing folders around and gotcha, hide gotcha. their bits okay. and all of that yeah. stuff and everyone goes along and enjoys it because it's potentially the future High Court judge of Australia that you will have seen nude. Um, <laughs> what a great a joke! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I feel like I'm oversharing. This is... <laughs> I mean, if, I think if there's a place to overshare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't... I mean, I sort of vaguely refer to that stuff, but I... I kind of leave it in my past because I, I was very much uh, you wouldn't have liked me man I was a weird kid why wouldn't I have liked you I think I'd have liked you I like lots of weird kids <laughs> <laughs> I think because it really kind of uh, generally I'm quite okay with myself nowadays and so revealing these kind of depths I think of of how insecure I was in the past makes me feel like I am insecure now. Yeah, sure. Thinking about it, it's like going back home, like going back to your school reunion, yeah. which I would never do. No, but, yeah. I never have. Right. I got, I, there was the only one that's cropped up for me, like my school school, which I hated, was last uh, spring, spring last year. And I was, so, I was in Australia at the time, or I knew I was going to be in Australia, so I didn't even have to think about it. Yes. yes. So, man, I don't even have to torture myself with the idea that somehow I failed if I don't have the bottle to go back and, and meet these children who no longer exist. Yeah, no. Scary, scary. Okay, so let's accelerate then and talk about not simply the sketches, writing sketches, but stand-up. When was the first time you went out with some gear to go, I'm going to stand here and tell jokes? Um, well, the very first time was at Sydney Uni. There was a stand-up workshop and they said, we need people for it. And they'd brought someone in to teach a stand-up workshop, a guy called Rob Carlton, and he was teaching this uh, stand-up workshop and I went along to that. I wasn't very interested in stand-up. I didn't like it as a form. I hadn't really watched very much of it. I think my idea of it was very much the American club sort of dick jokes thing. Uh, and then I was talking to my friend uh, Benita DeWitt, who is now a director, and saying, I don't really like stand-up and I don't really like women in stand-up. I don't, I, it's not the kind of thing I enjoy watching. And she said, well, do it better. And I said, I will if you will. Uh, so we did a gig. Great origin story. Yep. A dare. <laughs> I played chicken into stand-up. 
So we did a gig uh, and then I got into – I did a gig with my brother playing uh, the banjo and me singing um, and because I wasn't coordinated enough to do both at the same time. <laughs> and uh, then I got into Cambridge and it was, a, it was a money competition gig and we got into the grand finals. So I said to Benita, will you, will you be me? And then if you guys win, then you can come over and visit me in England, which would be lovely, me and my twin and my friend. And and they did it and apparently it was terrible. And my brother said he would never do comedy again and now he hates comedy. I think he always hated comedy. Uh, and Benita also quit comedy. <laughs> and then I was in Cambridge and I did the Footlights, which is more sketchy stuff. And then I went to New York, mainly because I didn't want to finish my law degree. And I was working in an investment bank and was really depressed in the corporate lifestyle. Sorry, this is just so much there. Um, Sorry, one of the things I should have said beforehand is that whenever we do a live one, round about 20 minutes in, my guest looks at the audience and goes, is this all right? <laughs> literally every time. Please Sorry. Uh, sorry to be predictable. Um, uh, <laughs> is that a thing? Is that a thing as well? I'm just caught in this fucking inception loop of doing what everyone else has ever done and then they I'm make sorry. the inception joke I, and then it's a hall of mirrors. and Everyone does that. No, oh, I'm joking, they absolutely do. They absolutely do. Um, yeah, so I was, I was quite. I wanted to do comedy. Uh, I thought of comedy as sketch and improv. I was too depressed and working too hard at this stupid sure. internship at this stupid investment bank to do that. So I started doing stand up then for the first time, legit, properly. Um, do you remember your first opener? What was my first opener? I can't remember. Or an, an early joke? An early joke. Uh, yes, maybe. An early joke would have been... Um, I think with Americans I noticed that they like it when you come down hard on punchlines and that they like hack premises. And I thought I'll try and make as hack a premise as possible into a good joke. Uh, sorry, I banged the mic there. Um, oh, God, I can't even remember what it would have been. Or do you remember your first close? Do you remember the first time you went, ah, uh, that angle, that note, that tone? Oh, I, like, I'm just having a blank here right now. Let me think. Uh, when life gives you lemons, make this face. <laughs> <laughs> solid, and solid. Then, and then dump him. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was one of them. So you were writing short, short jokes at the time. Were they all short jokes? Or short they... jokes and, and songs. So okay. I had like a, a song where I'd say, I wrote this song for a guy I've been seeing. He hasn't been seeing so much of me. We just catch the bus together, you know. And one day he looked at me and was like, who are you? So I took my cheek off his chest and came out from under his t-shirt <laughs> you know that kind of yeah yeah, yeah. That kind strong of thing. writing strong like, <laughs> early, early doors strong kind of technical writing yeah uh yeah so then that was mainly songs because songs were a crutch really genuinely when i started particularly in australia um if you came on stage as a woman and this is the problem. I think a lot of feminism now or a lot of aggressive, like, oh, this is prejudice, isn't necessarily prejudice, not all the time. At this time, if you walked on stage as a woman, people would sit back and go, oh, yeah. And if you walked on stage with a banjo, people would go, huh. 
Um, so the the two things I just did were sitting back with my arms crossed <laughs> and leaning forward, looking interested, um, respectively. It, it was it was so marked, and I had that as a crutch. And and now I tend not to use it unless I'm being paid because it is a crutch. It's an easy it's an easy go to uh, thing, and I don't have it in this show at all. Um, and there's, but there is a little reference in it where your AI partner points out that you have it backstage. Yes, because I do, because I'm doing a kids show in the daytime. So oh, great! Oh, there's, there's an element of truth in that. As yeah, well. Excellent. yeah, genuine. And I do have a song about a robot. Nice. <laughs> I, I, like I wrote it like six years ago. It's right there, sitting there. I could use it at any time, and not feel so ashamed of myself. Is that, is that a? Is that a? That's interesting. I, I think in, when I started the the scramble when I started doing stand up for me was to have some gear in my back pocket that was good enough to save me under any circumstances, uh, and then I had to let go of that. Oh yeah, because you can never be bulletproof. No one is. I mean. Unless they are, and I've just been failing a lot. Like, <laughs> I was leaving a pause there to to elucidate that point, and I think you interpreted that pause as I disagree, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't mean like that at all. <laughs> now let's take advantage of the fact that uniquely we have a room full of people who saw your show. Uh, I am going to rudely assume, without asking, that you're happy taking questions from yes, the floor. Yes, absolutely. Um, without... Except that guy. I don't want a question from. <laughs> <laughs> So we're in such a way that we don't give away to the listener who might eventually see this show um, too much about the show, what kind of issues were raised? I mean, I think we can agree it was not only a fucking brilliant show, but I, I certainly felt like five minutes in, I was like, this was exactly the right choice for my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. So do you, if anyone has any questions, feel free to put your hands up. We can, I, we can continue talking and come back to you now that we've had a, a, over there at the back, please. Lewis. There is a joke in your show that you admit that you're better than. Yes. Uh, are you including it in your show for the sake of the laugh or in order that you can say that about it? Uh, I'm including it for four reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and to hear any of those reasons, please sign up for the Insiders. <laughs> 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 please, please continue. Uh, the first one is the simple one. It gets a laugh, um, even when the greater joke doesn't get a laugh. But I need that joke for the balance of the show and to make the point. Um, so theoretically, I could rewrite a better joke, but I haven't. <coughs> Secondly, uh, it's in there because the show is about who can say what and how far you can push it and and what angle you're coming from that makes saying something okay or not okay. And I think by that point, I've kind of bought the goodwill of the audience. I, I say I'm better than that because I want people to know that I know that it is pushing the line and to know that I know the inherent problematicness and counter-arguments to that problematicness of that joke, which is that to say it might hurt people but also not to say it is patronising, if that makes sense. Uh, and then uh, the fourth reason I say it is because I only need to say two words of that joke and people get where I'm going with it. And then I can pull right out and say, no, I'm better than that. And that you get that satisfying laugh whereby people, it's one of those catch-up laughs. Yeah. Well, I, I literally only have to say, which logistically. Dot, then, dot, dot. Yeah. There's so, it's, I don't mean catch-up. It's like a closure joke, isn't it? Whereby people fill in the blanks themselves and it's just particularly satisfying. Yes. I, I find as a comic that when you, you give them the bits and you go, come on. I, I'm gonna. 
I can say the rest of it for the slow kids. Yeah. But uh, we all, we're all getting this. Yeah, well, also because it is, again, there are bits in my show where I deliberately push people's comfort levels um, into discomfort. That's something I did quite a lot of in uh, The Resistance and more in Empire. Just with that, what is comedy and where is that line and how much how much does it mean and how much, how much do you feel? I like, I like making my audience feel more than just laughing. Like I used to judge how successful Savage was by how much of a percentage of the audience was crying on the way out, <laughs> which shouldn't be how you judge a comedy. But was that, did, it, did, it, did you find it satisfying to make people cry with that show? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I needed, I mean, I very much needed to. I spent kind of a lot of my life... Uh, saying things were okay that weren't and putting on a, like a brave face to the world about how bad things were, like particularly with chronic illness stuff with my mum. I just, I was so angry. Like my grief spilled over into anger and I wasn't good at anger. And so it was just a way of holding the audience's face to this stuff and making them like it. (laughs) It was quite an aggressive urge. Um, I wanted them to feel this thing that, that I don't think a lot of people ever want to know about. I wanted them to not just know about it, but to like really know about it inside. And do you, does that still, now that you are further down the line of that emotional experience for yourself, Mm -hmm. do you still get the same reaction internally from making people cry at that show? Yes, in a way, different. I'm less angry now, but I think it's important. I think the whole point of all art is to move people one way or another and and I think that's the incredible thing about human beings is that we can empathetically project that we can to a certain extent feel other people's feelings and all art like telling stories hearing other people's stuff and imagining what it must be like even if you can never really get it is it makes you better people and more careful people I think Great answer. Another question, if there's one over there. Uh, Aiden. Yes. Have you had any uh, blowback uh, reaction? <laughs> <laughs> Have you, I, I'm not sure. It seems, it seems odd in this context. But Have you had any reaction to your, the bit of the material on stage in the show, uh, in Ethos, where you are talking about your mixed feelings about the Me Too? movement no i think it's very clear what my stance is um there's only a few lines in the whole show where i'm pushing you away on that and then bringing you back in i say that thing you know this is this is a reaction that i think a lot of people have and not a lot of people acknowledge because they know it's the wrong reaction to have and so by saying it in the context of this kind of i make it safe i say this is who i am this is where i'm coming from you can trust me i will admit to this reaction it doesn't often get a huge laugh, but you do get a lot of people going, oh, like that. Like it's a relief to people to know that they're not thought the wrong thing or had the wrong reaction. And then I make it sort of bring it around again to make it safe again. So it's just, it's like a little, I don't know what the metaphor is. I'm very tired, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> this is the, you go out of a show, you're in a show, you're like, you're, you're there and you push out, you oh, out to beyond the boundaries of yourself and then after the show you just want to hide in the corner and pack it all back in. <laughs> you had half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the question down here. 
in most of your creative work so far, this show being no exception, there are parts where we, I feel like we get exposed to the real truth of who you are and some properly personal stuff about your opinions, your identity and your thoughts on certain things. And, you know, you kind of, you open yourself up quite a lot. And yet, you're also very careful to keep parts of your life very much private and to yourself. And there are some bits about you that you've never talked about on stage, you've never revealed. The question is, how do you manage that sort of compartmentalization? And does it ever cause you any problems to do so? I think that's a great question. Um, I... There are things that I will not talk about, and part partly because I believe in creative constraints. I think it's it's good if you're not talking about the things that other people are talking about. And you know, when I came into comedy, one of the things was, oh, women only ever talk about dating. So I was like, I'm never going to talk about my personal life. I'm never going to talk about my my sexual uh, orientation. I'm never going to talk about my status, partnered or not. And I'm never going to uh, tell a story about someone um, without their permission. Um, without anonymizing them. So there are a few villainous characters that I have made anonymous in my shows, but the only real names I ever use are uh, characters who I've spoken about and they are okay with me telling the story or I'll, ch- I'll change their name, but or I'll, I'll, I might change the story, but again, only with their permission. Um, I don't think that that is a massive thing to compartmentalise, just to say... I mean, in a conversation, you're not going to talk about the sex you had last night or who you've got a crush on if you're talking... I mean, there are different people and different registers in which certain topics are appropriate or not. So I'll talk about things that other people won't talk about, but there are some things that are... I'm, a, I'm an open book with sealed sections. <laughs> very good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, any more? Okay. Alex. Um, you talked about art quite a lot. Yes. And I thought that one thing that was really interesting about your show is that it sits right on the line between comedy, which it definitely is, and theatre, which it kind of is. So I just was wondering what your, where you would place it on the art, in art. Do you remember Simon Munnery used to have that Venn diagram? Yeah, <laughs> yeah feel free to, just for the sake Almost. of people who aren't familiar with that, we've credited Simon, so what was it? There was a line. He's, he does a Venn diagram, and he brings out a Venn diagram where there are two circles side by side. He says, this is a Venn diagram, yeah, they're and not linked, one of them right. is uh, Venn diagrams, and the other one is circles. <laughs> or maybe diagrams and circles. He says, this is a Venn diagram, which explains what Venn diagrams are, but also if you don't know what Venn diagrams are, doesn't explain anything <laughs> and then he says uh, he does he, I think he flips it over and yes, it looks a bit like boobs so there's no crossover there's two side by side and there's comedy and there's art and he's saying that a reviewer once said that it was almost art which means it's almost not comedy <laughs> I'm, deli- I'm mangling this completely yeah, I, I, I would have, have seen similarly it hazy recollections ten, of it, it was yeah. a very very good joke go see Simon Munry good comedy can progress to shit art Yes. yes, if comedy gets good enough, it becomes bad art. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Which was the underlying... But, but I, I, absolute, I absolutely disagree with that as an idea. I think, um, I think comedy is good in terms of as, as an art form because there are not a lot of people who go, ooh, comedy, too fancy for me. Um, 
you can you can speak to a wider range of people. You can infiltrate people. people. You can sneak art under the radar. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why I try to sort of not be boxed in as a particular kind of comedian because I don't want people to know what to expect because I don't want to be preaching to the converted. What's the point in that? I'd be a preacher if I wanted to be a preacher. I don't want those kind of oh, yes laughs. I want people to, you know, I want to talk to a lot of different people, different kinds of people, interesting people and and, you know, make them laugh and bring them in. I think it's a, it is a form of art as much as anything else and it's a form of theatre as much as anything else. Can you give us an example of something that you cut from the show we've just seen and why? Ah, something that I cut from the show uh, that you have... I don't cut anything from the show. That's why it <laughs> runs over time. Um, I didn't do the robot song. Um, which even though I could have uh, because it was quite old and I wanted to make that point about failure. I, did want to, I didn't want to just be talking about failure and then not doing it. Like I, I genuinely wanted to be uh, <laughs> honest about that, not just lying, not just doing it for effect, to do something that is genuinely is a lot of fun, it works, but I do feel a bit embarrassed about it and it is sort of saying doing something that I said I would never do and and what what is that what's that feeling and we all do that like we all let down our better principles and whether it's forgivable or not um what else have I cut I'd have to pull up my computer which is in there I got I I have a document this is how I edit my work is I have a, a word document with the script and then I have a word document that's called cut bits and then I just cut and paste them into the thing so it doesn't feel like throwing them away Ah, that's so much more efficient than what I do. When I get to the writing it down, typing it on a laptop stage, I put the cut bits at the bottom of the document, which yeah, means I have to constantly scroll up and then the document blows out and then you print it and it turns out to be like 240 pages. That's I don't someone that hates you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scrolling 13, 14 pages at most before I get to the end. Yeah, so you just, I just put it in that document. So I could, literally I could pull up that document and tell you a cut bit, but I, I am blanking out on that. I saw Lauren Davis's show yesterday. Um, Laura Davis. Laura Davis. Yes, Ghost Machine. Yes, um, which was wonderful. Um, So you both name each other in your shows. Yes. Um, So I suppose my question is about, I'm really interested in friendship in comedy, so I was interested, from your perspective, how much you've influenced each other, consciously or otherwise... Uh, yeah, I did think. She, did Laura direct your show? I heard you say her name, but I couldn't remember the. I don't remember the. Yeah, she directed it in Adelaide, or gotcha. she gave me okay. notes in Adelaide. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was a really good. She came to the show and gave me actual notes, which is an extra, uh, a very unusual thing for me. I don't do that. I don't respect a lot of people's opinions <laughs> on on what I'm doing. Like, I know what... Often if somebody offers to give me notes, I'm like, I know what I'm doing wrong! It's fine! I'll fix it! I get very defensive, but Laura, you know, loves me and I love her, so I feel very... And I fucking love her work. It's incredible. She does incredible work. So I I feel very happy to let her tell me what she thinks or to say that's bad without getting upset about it. Because, as like, unlike things like feminism or buddhism or whatever if i'm doing a show that is about as close as of a representation to of of me as i can possibly get um it is it's very me like particularly savage i, I remember someone said also oh, i saw a review of savage and i just 
rage rose in me like a storm. I was like, how dare you have an opinion about my feelings about my fucking mother? Like, I was just so angry. I'm less angry now. But I... <laughs> but I, I was. I don't like people telling me how to do it, even if it's not as good as it could be. But because I wanted this show to be different, I wanted to do different things with it. I really thought I needed an outside eye. I wanted to change up the vibe, not get lazy. So she's... Yeah, she's fantastic. Go see her show. Uh, if you're in Edinburgh, it's 5.40 in the underbelly Cowgate. Ghost Machine. Is ghost right? Machine. Yeah, yeah, the first three quarters she's dressed as a ghost. <laughs> Spoilers, only the first three quarters. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's dressed as a ghost and it's, it's, it's a great show. It's very good. Can I ask, what do you consider to be your superpowers within comedy? What, what are your particular things that you're like, well, whatever else, I'm good at that? Whoa. <laughs> um, hmm. I think I can go I think I can tread lightly over heavy ground I feel compelled to go into heavy ground but I think I'm good enough at it that I that that's the thing I am confident in maybe falsely confident in maybe it will come back to uh, bite me I've put out a preemptive apology um, and I, I feel that, that certain that that will ha- come for us all at some point, but particularly if we are like deliberately putting ourselves out there. But yeah. What do you mean in, in terms of like the cultural context will shift and shift and shift again, and then your work might be? Well, that's it. Does it does? That's the nature of everything. But now everything's kind of frozen in amber. You don't get it yet to go get away from those things in your past, like. Imagine if I held you accountable for the poo you did on the floor when you were three. Like, there is a little bit of that. I mean, it's obviously exaggerated. And there are, of course, some jokes where you go that you should have always known that was wrong, that was always awful. But some, remember, remember the 90s? Remember when, you know, you had that deliberately grotesque aesthetic? You had Ren and Stimpy, you had, you know, South Park, all of these things that were coming out that. The twist towards the early 2000s where you had lad culture and it was gross out comedy you'd watch people puking into buckets and eating it and you know that was all on the table there and you had jokes that were there only for the purpose of being disgusting and being as disgusting as possible and young men would throw it around as my brother's friends were always like oh you know the baby in the blender jokes mm. they weren't saying it's funny if a baby gets put in a blender. They weren't supporting babies in blender. They were just doing the uh, dialectical equivalent of, of, of base jumping, just going, look what I can do, I don't give a fuck. It was machismo as much as anything else. And I think to hold that accountable to a standard now that exists is disingenuous and will breed hypocrisy. To pretend that that has never changed, to pretend that... You know, I, I'm going to quote a line from one of my own shows, like a fucking toss pot. But, like, <laughs> to pretend that you wouldn't have had slaves in a time when there was slavery, that there weren't people who had slaves who were nice people, as though we don't all have slaves now, just distributed <laughs> across a corporation. Like, I think it's, it, it will breed hypocrisy because people will hide their pasts unless you genuinely think you have never made a mistake and nothing you have ever done will ever come to be seen as a mistake. That's me off the hook. Thank God. (laughs) You know, 50% of marriages fail. Like, we are not... Like, that's no better than chance. That's tossing a fucking coin 
on whether you're right about anything at any given time. So, yeah, I don't know what my point was. And then no- now normally you chuck a one-liner in. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes this, is the, yeah, this is the point at which I would drop in a little bit of, like, really dumb wordplay. You'd think, oh, isn't she charming? <laughs> well, you say dumb wordplay. I, I just quickly, just uh, one of your punchlines, which I think I can say without spoiling the joke, uh, was the punchline was an opaque UI. And th- I just, I, got, I don't think I've heard anyone use either of those words on stage before, let alone sort of put together so deftly. <laughs> when you're writing are you, and, and you're typing, and you're writing at the laptop typewriting, like, do you, what's the relationship between kind of writing on stage? Like, do you improvise on stage ever? How does one arrive at an opaque UI? Is that something whereby you are so learned that your, <laughs> your language, you're, you're so articulate? Sorry, let me just adjust my monocle. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, would you, is that a sentence you typed out and you went, ah, what's the right word, and then spent some time on it? Or is that just that your brain is sufficiently deaf that you can... Uh... Um, I will write in a rant, usually. I'll write the sort of... the gist and then some of about three quarters of that will end up in the joke in a different order I'll reword it or whatever it is I think I have a good sense of when tension needs to be broken which is a side effect of having a sick mum which is you have to make an awful situation okay that happens occasionally you get good practice at that so I think maybe my comedy is in part about creating those awful situations and then so there is a little bit of you know I'll write a lot uh, and then I'll get on stage and I'll dig myself a hole and then hope my survival instinct kicks in <laughs> enough to write a punchline. I will also just try and write jokes on Twitter in quite a mechanical way, just like I want to write a joke about that subject or this subject, just as a kind of a discipline thing. And which, what elements of comedy practice in general do you wish you had more of a handle on? What things do you see other people do and think, I wish I could do that? I wish I were naturally funny. You know those funny bones people? Like, you know, they walk up to the microphone, they get a laugh before they've even hit the mic. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could do that. There are some, I know one comedian who has a 20-minute bit on chip packets. (laughs) Fucking incredible. (laughs) Sometimes I want to be that kind of just light-hearted, easy comedian. I I want to just make people laugh. Sometimes I want to do political comedy in that political comedy way where you're like, People are laughing because they, you're making them feel good about themselves rather than feeling compelled to torture people. <laughs> um, sometimes I want to do just silly slapstick, really just hit myself in the head with a banana for an hour. Like, I mean, I really fucking want to have a banana. Like, I genuinely, that you know, that line at the beginning of the show, I really want to have a banana skin on my shoulder that I pull off as I come on stage and then, like, at some point in the middle of a serious bit, just slip on, like, just fall over. Like, I just, oh, I want it so badly. (laughs) Maybe 100 banana skins on the stage and the whole hour is just me trying to get up. (laughs) I mean, it's testing very positively. (laughs) Yeah. You said before that um, you don't like to take criticism from people because unless you absolutely respect them, is the same true of well, praise? It's not necessarily respecting them, but it's very few people who I will look at and go, I think you know me better than I know myself. I think you see me better than I see myself in the mirror. 
you know, that there are things that are not visible to me that are visible to you because that's how well you know. Like that's a big thing and you need to be very close with someone to trust them to, you know, on the days when you feel insecure, I will go to Laura instead of the mirror and I'll go, is my hair lopsided? You know, that you need that level of trust with somebody, I think, to take criticism on something <coughs> that personal. I mean, it may, it might be better if I thought of comedy less as an expression of self and more of a an artifice, even though it is very much an artifice. But I think that's part of the Buddhism. You are what you do, not who you think you are. There's nothing, there's no continuing self. You're just what you do. Um, I don't... Of course, I am flattered by praise. It feels nice. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with praise, uh, but I appreciate it. Like it's, it's a nice thing. It makes me feel happy that somebody else has had something or taken something away. It makes me feel like I'm doing my job right. But you can't take it too personally because otherwise you have to take the criticism that personally as well. You have to, if you're like, yeah, I am amazing, then you have to be all like, oh, yeah, you are a filthy Jew whore. Like, <laughs> like you, you, you ha- do have to leave a layer between you and the whatever, whatever it is. Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Finally then, very last question. Um, uh, you, when I've mentioned to several people that you're on this uh, podcast, they've said, oh yeah, oh, Alice Fraser off of The Bugle. She's the best guest host. <laughs> uh, what's, what's the secret of being the best guest host on The Bugle? Well, the trick is you just be better than everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Alice Fraser, ladies and gentlemen. Yay! So that was Alice. Thank you so much to her for coming on to the show. And thank you to everybody. Oh, thank you in particular to Ben at the Vintage Mobile Cinema and he also of Tringe Festival, which is a fringe festival in Tring. Yeah, that he runs every year. Tring, you know, Tring. You all know where Tring is, right? So uh, thank you very much to Ben for allowing us that space. Thanks to everyone that came along. That was really fun. We should do that again, right? That was really great. We we all turned up and then we all had said hello and kind of awkwardly. And then we went in and we saw a show together. And then after we said hello way less awkwardly and had loads of stuff to talk about and then as you can hear people were able to ask intelligent questions based on the stuff that they just heard so that was really really fun and um, if you'd like to join the Comedians Comedian Podcast Facebook group you can be kept abreast of when the next one of those is perhaps you can even suggest it it's a very interactive community I sort of appear in it but I try not to um, direct it too hard I do occasionally have to step in and be a, a sort of benevolent Overlord, a benevolord, if you will. But um, that's all oh, that really works. Benevolord. Okay, that's the new thing. Uh, that's how I'm thinking of it from now on. So, um, so do join up to that if you would like to speak to the other sorts of people that enjoy this show. And um, there are only two sorts. So, so there's that. Of course, you can join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you would like to, to be closer again to the source of all of this pulsating uh, comedy stuff that comes out of this show. Um, you can uh, be even more uh, involved in exactly what it is and uh, suggest things to me. And, uh, and we, we've just got a really fun 
basically you end up with access to a sort of workspace app that is effectively like texting me. I don't know if this was sensible to set up, but um, but we've got this community with, a, uh, you know, a, f- a good few people in it and we can have uh, really fun chats in there. And um, I've been a bit r- uh, rubbish at dealing with in the last week because I've been on a much deserved holiday. So I'm not going to say rubbish. I'm going to give myself a break for that one. But um, more of that to come. And, uh, and I will see you in the Insiders Club workspace and with the private podcast if you choose to join. Thank you, as ever, to Rob Smouten for the music, to Peter Dobbing, podcast consultant, and um, to uh, to Nathan Wood for editing and producing this show. Thanks to everyone that came along uh, to see No Such Thing as a Fish live at the at King's Place at the London Podcast Festival. Thanks to Zoe for putting all of that together. Thanks to Sally, who looked after me when I was there. And all of the other fabulous... I saw some great... Hey, here's a little... I really should say this at the end of the No Such Thing as a Fish one, but maybe I'll just repeat it. I'll pre-repeat it or pre-peat it. Um, I also saw the Beef and Dairy Network podcast, which I'm going to tell you nothing about other than you should definitely download it and listen to it. And if you survive it, you'll definitely listen to it more. Um, I saw Hello from the Magic Tavern, which was really fun. Paul Foxcroft and uh, Cariad Lloyd and Tom Bell were the British guests appearing on that American sort of Dungeons and Dragons type podcast. And that is a really funny episode. I was so proud of uh, of how well the Brit did on that show. That was really, really good. Um, I saw a little bit of James Bonding, which is a podcast where two American comics, both called Matt, uh, talk about their mutual love of James Bond. And they were, I was completely on the outside of a lot of that, but it was very warm and welcoming. And also, um, what else did I see? I definitely saw other stuff, but it all passed by in a blur. And then I drove home at stupid o'clock in the morning. So that will do us. Um, I am looking forward... I'd, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to in the postamble, which, if you're new to the show, is a bit where I talk at you in a slightly more relaxed way after the interview business is complete, which is that's where we are now. So goodbye from me. I hope you subscribe to the show. Feel free to review it on iTunes, particularly from the UK. I think I need 14 more iTunes reviews to have 500 five star reviews. So uh, feel free to jump on that if you'd like. Um, and um, thanks for telling people about the show, donating to it, subscribing to it and all of those things. I will explain why I'm so tired and it's, it's, it's not it's less it's less rare these days me me doing post samples about how knackered I am. Um, but I will do that in just a moment. For now though, thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. So one of the reasons I'm so profoundly tired is that I've had an incredibly good holiday which culminated in a two and a half hour drive from Gatwick to Bristol at two early in the morning for it really. It was safe, but it was hairy. It was safe, but it wasn't very pleasant. I got in at 4am and then the boy woke up at seven something and um, and I'm feeling really... <laughs> I put something on Facebook this morning. I said, drove in. <laughs> I said, I drove from... I drove home from this holiday and I got in at 4am and then the boy woke up at, I think it was 7, I think it was 7, 7.05. Um, and then I, I posted at like half past, this has happened and I think I'm at the centre of the mandala. <laughs> and then I, at the time it made sense. It's like when you write a thing in a dream, like you, you wake up from a dream and write an idea for a joke and then look at it later that day thinking, oh, I've got that great joke written down. And then it says lobster question mark. Um it's uh, it, so I wrote. I'm, I think I, I think I can see the center of the mandala, 
And then I look back at it thinking, I bet that's got loads of likes. <laughs> it's got, if there was an expression, if there was an emoticon on Twitter for a sort of wry concern, it's got 15 of them. <laughs> um, I'm, I've got a bit delirious. So this is the, this is, that's, that was the little holiday that, that is normally, I'd, I'd finished the Edinburgh Festival over the month of August, and then in early September I'd have a little holiday. Um, and uh, and then I'd restart writing the next show. Now, as I've mentioned, I'm not writing a new show this year. For the first time in eight years, five of them consecutive. Um, <laughs> that's good, I can't think my way around that sentence. Um, for the first time in a good while, I'm not writing a new show this year. And new baby arriving in a month notwithstanding, I am planning to get round to a lot of things. So if over the last few years you got in touch with me at info at comedianscomedian.com and said, you should do this. I mean, I know you all think I should write a book. There is some movement on that, but you don't need to remind me of it, especially. Um, if you want to remind me of a thing I've said I'd, I'd said I, I'd get round to, then feel free. Now is a really good time to do that because I've got baby notwithstanding, baby and toddler. Oh, God. So at the, at the wedding that we were at on holiday... Uh, my lovely friend Neris, who has two children, started drunkenly singing at me. <laughs> I'll see if I can get the tune right as well. Two babies, twice as easy as one baby. <laughs> and, and that made me laugh and laugh. And I may also have cried. Twice as easy as one baby. So all all of that stuff's going to be happening. But um, But I'm also trying to see this as a year in which I get a lot of other projects I've meant to get round to for a long time comprehensively gotten around to so remind me if there's any of those what am i doing should i tell you what those things are there's there's a there's a big there's a, a big-ish podcast thing maybe happening which i won't tell you about until it happens um but that's been occupying a lot of my thinking time there's um uh, what else there's maybe a book there's maybe two different sorts of books two maybes two books um there's Beyond the child rearing, I know there's loads. I've what it is is there's there's a proper six at least six hours sleep, and then there's a reappraisal of of everything on my plate and whether I should be telling you. And I'm, I'll run to Nathan last minute and go, "Don't put that out. I'm rambling and incoherent." Um, this is this is this is spring for comedians, isn't it? This is spring. This is like. Oh, the world is so full of possibilities and I haven't even got to make up a name for a thing that doesn't exist yet any minute now, you know. So um, let's let's enjoy springtime for comedians, <laughs> the musical. And um, I I went on a holiday. I feel like I'd I feel like I'd like to let you all in on the fun holiday that I had, but I'm too tired to think of any fun things that happened during it. Oh, I'll I'll tell you this, then I'll clear off and I'll try and go to bed. Um, uh, it, the wedding was in Sicily, and the father of the bride, the English bride, Sicilian groom, the father of the bride, lovely man, bit of a character, uh, was explicitly told by the sister of the bride that he was not allowed to make any mafia jokes. And when I heard this, some hours in advance of the uh, the best man's, uh, the, the father of the bride's speech, um, I uh, predicted that he would try and get round being told not to mention the mafia, specifically by saying, "I've made him an offer he couldn't refuse," and uh, as you know from the Godfather. And uh, I'm pleased to say, ladies and gentlemen, I won myself a shiny, a shiny gold 
The Euros aren't gold, aren't they? My point is, I was right. I was so pleased. I had a little moment of professional pride thinking, thinking my way. I was like the, the Jack Reacher of, um, not exactly stand up, the Jack Reacher of uh, comedy brackets folk art. <laughs> comedy as folk art. You know, comedy as used by non professional uh, people, which is, let's face it, that's 90% of comedy, isn't it? It's, it's not clever clogs people in uh, in smart evening wear telling jokes for money. It's It's people making each other laugh uh, on social media and in social life. Uh, but I felt like I comprehensively Jack Reacher that one. I was like, right, if that guy was told not to say that, what would he say? He'd say that, and he did. I was like, good work, Goldsmith. <laughs> if only this could be turned. Is there a job? Is there a... It's all about uh, niches bringing riches. Is there a niche market for correctly predicting what jokes people will go for under certain parameters? Because... Honestly, it was like the hugely implausible bit in Jack Reacher, I don't know, what, 16, where someone gets kidnapped and he just looks at a map and thinks about it for a bit and then drives to the exact motel where the kidnapped victim is. It was like that, but for jokes. I'm absolutely signing off now because this is uh, this is degenerated further. Um, thank you for listening. I've got so many great episodes for you and I don't need to leave the house to record any of them. Speak to you soon. Oh, God, my mind. Don't include this bit. Go back to where I paused. <laughs> imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.